Well, good morning. It's another uh, delightful day here. Assuming my notes don't blow away, we should be in good shape. Um, I appreciate, again, the opportunity to open God's Word with you. And um, I wanted to begin today by raising the question of identity. So if I were to ask you, who are you? How would you respond to that? How would you answer that question? My guess is that many of us would at least at some level begin by stating your name. So let's say though that after stating your name, I pushed back and said, now that's your name, but who are you? And so maybe if you're pressed, if someone asked me that question, here are some of the things that I'd probably be inclined to respond back with. I might say something like, well, uh, I'm a man. I might say, I'm an old man. I might say, I'm an old white man. I might say, I'm a professor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a coach. I'm a friend. All these different things that come to mind when it comes to our identity And all of those are true statements. None of those is false, and yet none of those statements actually gets to the core of my identity. And so the question for this morning is, what is it that ultimately defines our identity? Or perhaps an even more important question is, who defines our identity? And those questions have been running all throughout Galatians 3, sometimes on the surface, sometimes in the background. But as we get to the passage we're looking at this morning, Paul is going to reach a sort of initial conclusion. The argument's not over. It's going to extend all the way through chapter 4. But he reaches an initial conclusion here at the end of chapter 3. And throughout this lengthy chapter, Paul has been trying to explain who are the true sons of Abraham, those people who are declared not guilty in God's court of law and receive the inheritance that God had promised to Abraham all those years ago. And he's made it clear that in order to be a son of Abraham, that depends on believing and receiving rather than doing and earning. In other words, those who have the same kind of faith as Abraham, who believed in the God of the promise and also in the promises of God, those are the people who are justified, declared not guilty before God, and receive the gift of God's Spirit. Having this right standing with God cannot be achieved by trying to obey God's commands because no one can do that perfectly. So instead, we receive that gift of a right standing before God by putting our trust in Christ, because He is the one who suffered in our place the judgment that you and I deserved for our rebellion against God. And God gave the law to expose sin, to show it for the gross, gross, nasty thing that it actually is. 
But when he gave it, he gave it with that built-in expiration date, that there was coming a time when the law, the Mosaic law, would no longer have a binding authority on his people. And that expiration date was when the promised descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would come along. Now, before that, Paul tells us that the law functioned kind of like a babysitter, someone who watched over and protected us and tried to keep us safe and tried to keep us out of too much trouble, but it was never designed to give us eternal life. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under this authority of the Mosaic law. And so that brings us to our short passage for today. And it's Paul's sort of initial conclusion that he's going to help us see where he's been taking this argument all along. And he's been all through this chapter trying to explain this issue of who are the sons of Abraham. But as we get to the passage for today, as we were reading through it, did you notice that Paul makes a subtle shift? Look with me again at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So you see what he's done here. The whole chapter he's been talking about, okay, who are the true sons of Abraham? And now all of a sudden he gets to his conclusion and he says, you are all sons of God. It's almost like he says, I see your sons of Abraham and I'm going to raise you one, sons of God. In fact, he's saying, yeah, it's great to be a son of Abraham, obviously, but how much better is it to actually, in fact, be a son of of God. Now, I think most of us, when we hear that title, Son of God, if we come from a church background, we probably tend to think of the second person of the Trinity, right? There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's absolutely true. But we need to note that in the Old Testament, that title of Son of God was actually applied to a variety of different people. It was applied to Adam. It was applied to the nation of Israel as a whole. It was applied to King David. And it was also applied to this promised descendant who would come from David's line and rule over an eternal kingdom. So when you hear Son of God here, you have to think in terms of authority, but also intimacy. That's some of the connotations that we find here. And of course, when you think about it, when Jesus was first introduced publicly at his baptism, right? What is it that the voice from heaven, God the Father, says in announcing who this is? He says, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. And so in the remainder of this passage, Paul is going to actually teach us three truths about our identity as sons of God. And so the first one is that sonship is based on our union with Christ. Sonship is based on our union with Christ. Let's look again at verses 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
So our status as sons of God is further explained by two phrases. The first one is, in Christ Jesus. And that's one of those phrases, I think, that if you read the the New Testament a decent bit or you've kind of grown up in the church, it's one of those phrases that you hear a lot, but if you have never really stopped to think, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? So to be in Christ means that Christ is the sphere or the realm where we live as believers. It also refers to our status or our condition as believers. So if someone were to ask you, where do you live? One answer you might give is, I live in Indiana or the United States. And that simple answer, actually, if you unpack that, helps us understand a little bit about who you are because it tells us something about the climate. It tells us something about whose authority you're under. It tells us something about what sort of rules and laws and regulations apply to you. And it even tells us something about privileges or benefits you are entitled to. That's the same way with that expression in Scripture, in Christ. You see, He is the context for our entire existence. He's the one who has ultimate authority over us. He is the one who determines how we should live as God's people. He is the one who provides us with countless spiritual blessings. All of those realities are true because we are in Christ. It is as if Christ is the air that we breathe or the water that we swim in. Everything that surrounds us is, spiritually speaking, because we are in Christ. So that's the first phrase in Christ. The second one is through faith. Now, all throughout this chapter, Paul has been talking about the importance of faith, and he's just reiterating that the only way that we get to be in Christ is through faith. Not only are we justified by faith, not only do we receive the promises made to Abraham by faith, not only do we receive the Holy Spirit by faith, we are placed in Christ by faith in Him. And when you put these two realities together, you get what theologians often refer to as union with Christ. And that's just a a fancy theological expression that tries to get at this reality that when we put our trust in Jesus, we are so closely joined to Him, so united with Him, that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. And that union is visibly demonstrated in baptism, and that's why Paul mentions it here in verse 27. And actually, in Romans chapter 6, Paul gives even further clarification of that relationship between us being joined to Christ, being united to Christ, and baptism. So listen along as I read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
So when a person is immersed in the waters of baptism, it's a picture of sharing in Christ's death. And when that person emerges from the water, it's a picture of Christ's resurrection. And water baptism is the visible representation of the spiritual reality that has already taken place when a person has put their trust in Christ. So, in verse 27 here of Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, it might seem like a strange uh, image to talk about, but really it's it's the imagery of clothing. Paul uses that imagery of clothing to help us understand a reality about our union with Christ. Now, clothing often communicates something about a person's identity and social status, but it can also have a symbolic value as well. Now, that's true today. So, as we're out and about, when we see people, we often make some initial assumptions about a person based on how they are dressed. So, if we see a person wearing a suit and a tie, we think that they're probably going to a formal occasion, or maybe they're a businessman or something like that. Or maybe if we see a person who is wearing athletic clothes, we tend to think that she's an athlete and that physical fitness is important to her. Now, of course, those conclusions can be completely wrong, right? We've all had that experience. The person who's wearing the athletic clothes might just like the way that they fit her, and she may have no interest in exercise or being an athlete. But the reality is that clothes give a certain impression to others about our identity. Now, this symbolic importance of clothing goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember this? Right after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they realized that they were naked. And so they try to put together these fig leaves to cover their nakedness because they recognize their shame at rebelling against God. And yet, as part of God's grace, what does He do? He replaces those inadequate coverings with skins to help cover them. Now think about that. How did we get how did he get those skins? An animal had to die. So right there in Genesis 3 you see for the very first time an act of sacrifice, something gives its life in order to cover the shame of someone else. And with those, for, for those with eyes to see, that's exactly what he's anticipating Christ will do all the way back in Genesis 3. Because when we are baptized into Christ, when we put our trust into Jesus, it is as if what God does is He takes our filthy garments of sin and self-righteousness, and He says, take those off. I'm going to clothe you in the perfect and complete and spotless righteousness of my son, Jesus. That's in part what baptism pictures for us. So, the first thing that we learn about our identity as sons of God is that it's based on us being joined to Christ, our union with Christ. The second thing we learn about sonship is 
that sonship transcends our earthly identities. Sonship transcends our earthly identities. Look with me again at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul offers us three categories that since really the days following Adam and Eve's rebellion have been fundamental to how this world identifies people. The categories of, um, of, of ethnicity, of social status, and of gender. You see, our human culture since those days has always sought to classify and divide people based on these kinds of categories, based on ethnicity, based on social status, based on gender. And it's important to see here that what Paul is saying is that everyone, regardless of those categories of ethnicity, social status, and gender, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ is a son of God. And again, that's a very intentional title, not to say children of God, but son of God, because it helps us see the connection between us and Jesus, the son of God. And as we'll see later in this passage, it's connected to a very important reality about inheritance. So, it's important to say here that if you have put your trust in Jesus, your most fundamental identity is your status as a son of God. Your most fundamental identity is not your ethnicity. It's not your social status. It's not your gender. Your identity as a son of God is the most important and fundamental aspect of who you are. And when it comes to becoming a son of God, none of those categories matter one single bit. However, and this is where we need to think so very carefully, these distinctions have not been obliterated. You see, Paul makes it clear that these distinctions still come into play when it comes to God working out His redemptive plans in this world. So he can talk about how the gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Greek. These distinctions come into play when we think about how do we order our lives as the people of God within the church. So the same man who wrote this statement can also say that the role of pastor or elder is restricted to men. These distinctions also come into play when we think about how we're to engage the society and culture around us. So Paul can tell slaves that they should not obsess over their status as slaves and yet to pursue freedom if the opportunity presents itself. And current events in our culture in our nation, make this such a relevant and particularly challenging passage to know how to specifically apply it. 
Now, I will not pretend to sort out all of that by any stretch, but I do think what Paul says as a minimum here is that because our fundamental identity is as sons of God, that means that we have more in common with a person who is in Christ, even if they are a different ethnicity, a different social status, a different gender, than we do with the person who shares our ethnicity, social status, and gender, who is not in Christ. I remember this being driven home to me very clearly as I was in Israel several years ago, and we were having a conversation with a Palestinian Christian who was part of a Messianic congregation where there were where there were Arabs and Jews together worshiping Jesus, which if you understand the, his, the history and the politics of that is a remarkable thing to begin with. And so I was asking him, how does that work? And he says, well, we understand that our primary identity is as followers of Jesus and everything else must take a back seat, even though we disagree on a lot of other things. And I just found myself thinking, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of the power of God to bring together people that on a worldly level are supposed to hate each other, but because of their love for Jesus, they love one another. We need to let that sink in because we live in a culture that wants to constantly divide us along the lines of ethnicity and social status and gender. And there are so many different ideologies in our culture that tell us that what matters most is your ethnicity, what matters most is your social status, what matters most is your gender. And many of these ideologies are explicitly opposed to a biblical worldview. Others are more subtly so. But we must remember that at the end of the day, our fundamental identity is as sons of God. And yet, we need to humbly listen to and empathize with those who are suffering and hurting. We need to show compassion even if and when we disagree with them about the root problems and the possible solutions to the complex issues in our culture. We need to call out injustice for what it is, a sin against a holy God and against His image-bearing people. And we need to point people to the one who has suffered the greatest act of injustice ever in human history. We follow a Savior who willingly laid aside His rights and His privileges to take on flesh and offer up His life for us. That's the kind of Savior we follow, so it makes sense that we should probably be willing to lay aside our rights and privileges if it serves the greater good of loving others and advancing the gospel. So Paul's point here is not that these distinctions are utterly obliterated now that Christ has come, but that they have been transcended. When it comes to a person standing before God and being in a right relationship with Him, none of these categories matter. 
Faith in Christ makes a person a son of God, regardless of ethnicity, social status, or gender. That is the foundation of our unity and the starting point for how we should think about and engage our culture on these challenging subjects. So, sonship is based on our union with Christ, and it transcends our earthly identities. Now, the third truth that Paul is going to share with us about sonship is that sonship makes us heirs. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So now Paul's going to come at this question of identity from a slightly different angle when he says that believers are Christ's or that we belong to Christ. Through his death and resurrection, Christ has purchased us. And that's ultimately what it means when the Bible says that Christ redeemed us. He rescued us from our captivity to sin, death, and the devil, and he made us his own. And based on that reality, Paul says that we as believers are Abraham's offspring. So now the argument that began with the question of who are the true sons of Abraham has reached the conclusion that everyone who trusts in Jesus are in fact Abraham's offspring. And because we are Abraham's offspring, we receive the inheritance that God had promised to Abraham and his offspring. Now, it's important to follow Paul's logic here. He says, all who believe, regardless of ethnicity, social status, and gender, are offspring of Abraham because we are joined to Jesus Christ, the true and ultimate offspring of Abraham. So the fact that we're offspring of Abraham has nothing to do with us being special and everything to do with Jesus being special special. Now, I'm guessing that most of us have had an experience where we receive something or get to experience something because of someone that we know or are connected to, someone who's in a position of status or influence. So last year, I decided to take my two sons to celebrate their birthdays to a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball game. And what they didn't know as we were going there is that we were going to meet up with a relative of mine who is the Senior Director of Partnership Development with the Cavs and has worked for the organization for over 30 years. So before the game, he took us around the arena, showing us places that were off limits to the general public. And there were even a few times where he would open a door for us and he'd have us walk through in front of him. And on the other side of that door, there would be a security guard. And he would start to step towards us and say clearly, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You don't have access. And then they would see my relative Steve. And Steve would say, it's all right, Gus, they're with me. And suddenly the posture of that security guard went from 
hesitant and confrontational to, oh, they're with you, Steve, of course, come on in. His entire demeanor would change. And so we got access to different parts of that arena, not because I'm anything special, not because my sons were anything special, but because there was someone there who had access and was a big deal. And because we were connected with him, we got into places that we had no business being in. And as amazing as that experience was, think for a moment about the even greater blessings that we have because we are united to Christ. We can enter the very throne room of heaven itself and not immediately be condemned and cast out because we're with Jesus. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, not because we did anything special, but because Jesus is the one who purchased that benefit for us. We have been declared not guilty in God's court of law, not because we were perfect, but because Jesus was perfect. Stop for a minute and consider how amazing it is that God not only justifies us in His court of law, but He gives us the inheritance that is rightfully His Son, Jesus's. Consider for a moment the fact that for all of eternity, God is going to spend that showering you, overwhelming you with the riches of His grace. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. He says that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity, God is going to overwhelm us with His riches of grace. That's what eternity is going to be like. And that begins right now because He has given us the down payment of that inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. That is the inheritance that we have because we are united to Jesus. We are sons of God with an inheritance because we're united to Jesus, the Son of God. So we began this morning by thinking about that question of identity. Who are you? The world and the culture around us tries to define us based on categories such as ethnicity and gender and social status, and we are encouraged to define ourselves however we'd like and told that no one has the right to tell you who you are. We can just define ourselves endlessly. If you want to be this this day, you can be that that day. You can just change it up however much you want because you're in charge of just identifying, of self-identifying. How do you want to identify? And that's just who you are. Friends, that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God is the one who defines who we are. He is the one who has the authority to say, this is true about you. He is the ultimate authority on who we truly are. And what he says about us, if we put our trust in Jesus, is that you are a son. You're my son, my beloved son, because we're united to Jesus. Now, in a, in a group this size and people watching online, I am confident that there are 
least some, who are not yet sons of God. That you are still stuck on the endless treadmill of trying to define yourself based on whatever you think the culture wants or what your selfish desires want. And let me just say to you, God offers you a path out of that endless treadmill that leads to destruction and says, if you'll just put your trust in me, you'll be my son, my beloved son that I'll give an inheritance to. Today is the day that you can turn away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus because that is the only hope you have of being right with God. And those of us who put our trust in Jesus we have an identity that transcends all of those categories. And as sons of the living God, our status is based on union with Christ. And it transcends all of these earthly categories. We have an inheritance, one that far surpasses any earthly inheritance that you can imagine. God has given us His Holy Spirit as just a down payment on the greater realities that are still yet to come for all of us who are in Christ. So fellow sons of God, let's live as people whose identity is shaped by that reality and not the culture around us. Let's live as those who truly believe that the categories of this fallen world do not define who we are. And let's live as those who display the beauty of Christ and the power of the gospel by uniting with others who are sons of God to show this fallen world that through the good news of the gospel, there's a way beyond the seeming endless division in this world. And as we inevitably fail and inevitably make mistakes in that effort to do that, my hope is that we will never lose sight of how God thinks of us as His sons. It's captured well in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray.